Good morning. It is uh, my privilege to introduce our speaker for this morning, Pastor Joe Novenson. Um, Joe has been the senior pastor at Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church since 1996. Um, he loves Jesus and he loves his church and has influenced generations of individuals and families, mine included, to do the same. Uh, he and his wife Barb have three children, all graduates of Covenant College and four grandchildren, hopeful graduates of Covenant College. Um, please give a warm Scots welcome to Pastor Joe Nelson. Thank you for letting me come. I mean that very much. Because I am the debtor of this place and this community because of the impact upon me, the flock I'm privileged to serve and my own children. So it's an honor. Before I begin, I asked her permission that I could say this. Everything I'm about to tell you, I learned from the grandfather of a freshman, Eowyn Alford. Her grandfather, Dan DeHaan, spoke these words, and they changed my life. They anchored me, and so I want to take you to those words. I return to them often. I hope they will be a help, especially to the freshman class, but not exclusively. I want to take you to the book of Hebrews. I would arguably like to present to you what, in my estimation, the Bible teaches explicitly is the greatest problem. If you are a believer, I would like to tell you what the Bible says is your greatest problem, the greatest danger that you have and face. And then second, I would like to show you just the beginning of the solution. I know that's a pretty auspicious goal, but listen to Hebrews chapter 1, beginning at verse 1, and here's the solution. Hebrews 1, verse 1 and following. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven, and he became as much superior to the angels as the name he's inherited is superior to theirs. Here are three descriptions of your greatest danger and problem. One. We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we've heard so that we do not drift away. Two, Hebrews chapter 3, beginning at verse 7. So as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Again, Hebrews 3, beginning at verse 15. Just as has just been said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Chapter 4, beginning at verse 7. David, as was said before, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And finally, Hebrews 5, verse 11. 
We have much to say about this, but it's hard to explain because you are dull of learning. Your greatest problem and the biblical solution. Let's pray. In minutes, do much. Help me. Help us. In Jesus' name, amen. You know her name. She's now iconic. In fact, old enough that now she's almost forgotten. Her name is Bethany Hamilton. When she was 13, she was surfing just off one of the eight islands that make up the Hawaiian state. She was there with another friend, Alana Blanchard, who was also 13, and Jeff Balba, who's 52. When all of a sudden her life changed, as you may well remember. Here's Bethany's exact words. There wasn't even a ripple. I was lying on the board, and the shark kind of came out of nowhere. I caught something out of the corner of my eye, but I didn't think anything of it. And you know how when you eat steak, you kind of have to rip it because it's kind of tough? The shark jerked me like that, but he never pulled me under. It was all red in the water. And then I was like, I got attacked by a shark. Jeff Walba said she never screamed. She just said calmly, shark. From the loss of her arm to the size of the bite in the board, the estimate was it was a 14 to 15 foot, one ton tiger shark that had bitten her. And here's why I begin with that. There's a shark in the water here. There's a fin that may not have even broken the water. It won't even leave a ripple, but it can gut you. And the person seated next to you won't even tell that you've been attacked. It's described in the book of Hebrews with these three words. You can hear they imply no ripple, drift. No ripple, dull. No ripple, harden. What do you have to do for a boat to drift? Very simple answer, nothing. Just leave it alone. Don't drop an oar, don't lift a sail, don't start the engine, don't drop the anchor, just leave the boat alone. And if it's in the water, it ain't gonna stay where it was, it'll drift. What do you have to do, and I'm gonna push the Greek here, I realize that, what do you have to do for a really fine knife to dull? Again, I don't care how good the cutlery is, if you leave it alone long enough, it won't get sharper. It'll become more dull. Just do nothing. What do you have to do for clay to harden? 
Nothing. That's what I mean. No ripple. And before you know it, you have been gutted. Now, to be clear, I'm arguing that what I've just told you is the greatest danger, if you're a believer, to every one of you. And if you're not a believer, this may explain to you why you see believers slip, sliding away. Here's proof from the scripture as to why this, I would argue, is your greatest danger. If I say the name of just two cities, if I just say their name, they will call to mind immediately certain repertoire of sins. Listen. Sodom and Gomorrah. And immediately, your mind begins to connect with a certain repertoire of behaviors, actions, attitudes. But I want you to hear what the Bible says was their primary issue. Ezekiel says in chapter 16, 49, this is the sin of your sister Sodom. Overfed and listened apathetic. Listen. The sexual immorality, the abuse of humanity of themselves and each other was the symptom. The cause was apathy to God. You see, when you stop caring this way, you can do anything this way or this way. And that's what happened. The issue for Sodom and Gomorrah was a rippleless apathy. I told all three of my children, close to when they came here, the number one trespass in our home is apathy. When you're a parent and you're sitting there and your kids give you one of these, You might as well hit me with a crossbow. Because what do I do with them? I just don't give a flying rip. Here's another proof from the scripture. The greatest commandment according to Matthew 22, 34 to 40. Very clear, you know it. Thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. On these two laws hang all the law and the prophets. Think very carefully. The word hang there is the same word that Luke chose to use in the book of Acts when he described the crucifixion of Christ and says they hung him on the cross. And when Jesus described this book, you will learn or you know, he never called it Habiblas. He called this HaTorah, HaNetuvim, HaKetuvim, the law, the writings, and the prophets. So listen to him again. Love the Lord your God with everything you've got. Love your neighbor with everything you've got left. On these two laws hangs all the law and the prophets. What he just said was, you could take a railroad spike and drive it right through this book, and it'll swing like a pendulum on two things. Loving God and loving your neighbor. And if that's true, and it is, then that means that the greatest act of obedience is loving God and loving your neighbor. Therefore, the greatest sin isn't even something you do. It's something you don't do. I don't love you. So why 
would I care about them? Not a ripple. When the sacrificial system was begun in Leviticus chapter 4 and God gives all the commands to Moses about how to build the tabernacle after it's done and it's finished, do you know what the first sins God outlined were to be brought before him with a sacrifice? Do you think it was murder? Do you think it was idolatry? Do you think it was some of the big ten? It wasn't. No ripple. Leviticus 4 says, here are the first sins God brought out in chapter 1. Chapter 4, verse 1. Listen. Unintentional sins. Oh, my stars. I know what I do intentionally. And I don't even know what I do unintentionally. And God says, listen, this is a kingdom different than any others. I know you. The first thing I want you to understand is that by the blood of the sacrifice, I cover what you don't even intend to do, let alone what you intend. Not even a ripple. Finally, if you like the book of Hebrews and you look at it and compare it to the rest of the Bible, you'll notice I call it the emergency room of the Bible. Here's why. Did you notice there's no introduction? In the past, it starts. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers in various ways and in various times. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. Read James. It begins, James, a servant of God, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. <laughs> Greetings. No intro. This is an emergency room. If you've ever come to an emergency room, as I have after I crushed both my hands two months after marrying Barb, I want to tell you, when they brought me through those doors, I hit those doors on a gurney. As soon as I came through the doors, there were people running around me shouting. After my hands had been crushed in sheet metal rollers, they're jerking them out to either side of me. A lady came up to my blue jeans with a pair of scissors and went right up the bottom, right across the bound again, pulled them right off, did the same with my shirt. I was buck naked in the middle of this room. <laughs> they're shoving stuff in my arms. No one said to me, hello, Mr. Novenson, we're glad you're here. Welcome to RER. <laughs> they were afraid I was going to bleed out. This is an ER. Hebrews is saying, you could bleed out. And I want to stop it. I want you to see very clearly what it is not primarily. I say primarily because it is a part of it, but it is not essentially this. What most of us think, at least what I do, most of us think, okay, if I'm going to have trouble with drifting, dulling, or hardening, I better buck up. How many sermons do you hear about bucking up? I just speak to you as an older man. I am 65. My bucker busted a long time ago. I can't buck up. Why does he not start there with saying, stop it? But instead starts here. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers in various ways and at various times. But in these last days, 
He's spoken to us by the Son, whom he appointed, heir of everything, through whom he made the universe, who sustains all things by his powerful word. This is an ER. I'm going to suggest to you, this is the defib stuck on the chest of the dulling, drifting, and hardening believer. God is taking sovereignty and putting it right down on our heart and saying, let's talk. In this three little sentences, one, two, and three, he says, Jesus is the heir, that's redemption. He made it, that's creation. He sustains it, that's restoration. By death, design, and direction, he bought it, he made it, he preserves it. It's given by the Father, created by the Son, kept by the Spirit. He's saying, the first thing I want to give you is a bigger view of God than you probably got. Let me state it in a principle. The bigger the pressure for you to drift or dull or harden, the bigger that push, and the smaller your God, and the smaller your grasp of salvation, the more likely you are to just drift away. The opposite is true. Also, when your view of God is titanic, when the pain, the pressure goes up, as it was in the book of Hebrews, the Jewish believers were being persecuted, and as the pain went up, the author of the book of Hebrews couldn't make it seem less. So what he does is he takes their view of God and says, your view of God better exceed the level of pain you're experiencing it and he shoves it through the roof and says, let me tell you how big he is. If you follow that pattern in the scripture, you'll find that the people from whom God asks the most, he shows the most of himself. Think of it. John the Baptist would have his head cut off because someone who had lost being mentally hinged wanted to have some pornographic pleasure and he couldn't go on a computer. So Herod invites Salome to dance. You'll never see a Jesus movie that portrayed the way she danced. And the payment to have his head cut off and brought in on a platter. But you remember that there are only two times that the Trinity actually begins sensibly to appear in the New Testament. Once is to John the Baptist. At the baptism. Jesus is standing right there. The pillar of, of, excuse me, the dove descends upon his shoulder. The image of the Holy Spirit and the Father speaks. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. How many people have ever perceived the Trinity at one time? John does. Because God knows what he's going to ask of him. So basically what he does, he says, Son, look at me. Look at me. He did the same thing to Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration because all three of them would go through horrific difficulty. Peter likely crucified upside down. James likely run through with a spear. And John would get personal word that every one of his friends was dead. 
and the seven churches in the book of Revelation all get their bottoms spanked. If I'd been him, I would have thought, we failed. But in the Mount of Transfiguration, same thing. The Trinity shows up. The pillar of fire and smoke comes down. The Old Testament symbol of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus starts to glow and the Father speaks and says, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And again, you see it. The bigger the pressure for you to dull, drift, and harden, the bigger your view of God needs to be. You're going to be taught that here. Listen very carefully. Because this is true of every one of you if you are a believer. Look up here if you've been asleep, please. This hand represents you. This hand represents God. This is what happened when you converted. You were kind of just hanging out. And God started to come after you. And you went believe that's God. <laughs> and you grabbed back. But if you follow him for more than five minutes, you'll do this. And if you follow him for more than five days, you'll do this. How do you stop this or this? Don't look at this. Look at this. I will not let you go. It's my grip on you, not yours on me. Start here. That's where Hebrew starts. Right here. That's why he starts with sovereignty. Now here's the problem. He doesn't look sovereign. If you're right now, right on the edge, or you've already begun to dull, drift, and harden. You know that under your chair, the blood's on the ground. You've already been gutted. You know part of it is he doesn't feel sovereign. And can I just remind you that he often doesn't look like it when he actually is. Example, and then I'll have to close with an illustration. Do you remember when he looked the least powerful? I would argue the Garden of Gethsemane and the cross. In the Garden of Gethsemane, we have the only time that according to Hebrews, again, chapter 5, verse 11, it says, with loud shouts and tears, he prayed to the one who could save him from death. We have no other record of Jesus ever crying and shouting at the same time than Gethsemane. The disciples had never seen him scream and cry. And he had asked them to stay awake and pray, and they couldn't give him three minutes of waking time. It says from his prayer that he's sweating blood. This does not look like a man under control. And then you remember the guard came. We don't know how many, 16, 200, we don't know. And as they come, Malchus is with them. And so is Judas leading them. And you remember Malchus, the guard, starts to make his way toward Jesus. By this time, apparently, the apostles have awoken. And Peter starts to do an end run around Jesus to get to Malchus. And it says that he cut off Malchus's ear. I don't think he walked up and went, huh. <laughs> I think he went, and Malchus ducked. 
And his ear went... I, I personally believe Malchus is the most confused man in the whole Bible. I can imagine him going, all right, I come to kill you. Then you try to kill me. Then you put my ear back on. And then you remember what he did with Peter? He yelled at him. He said, you live by the sword, you die by it. Why are you yelling at him and not at me? <laughs> Who's in control here? <laughs> he is. And in the next chapter, he'll look even less controlled. Now beaten beyond human recognition, it says he's standing before Pilate. How do you stand when you've been beaten until you don't look human? He's standing there. And when Pilate says, don't you realize I could kill you or set you free? I have that power. And Jesus says, you'd have no power unless it had been given to you from above. Here's my paraphrase. You foolish little man. You don't have me. I have you. You do what my father and I will you to do. Take me out. Because I plan on dying for people here. Doesn't look in control, but he is. I close with this. If you can feel the dulling, drifting, and hardening, here's where you start with a bigger view of God's power and salvation. And anything that diminishes that, run, get away from it. And anything that enhances it, stay near, cherish it. I'd illustrate it this way. If you think you understand God's sovereignty and his salvation of you, you're a lot like I was when I married this woman seated right down here. And I said, I do. And I thought, I know what it means that I love her and she loves me. Hmm. Two months later, two months later, after I said, I do, I crushed both of these hands in sheet metal rollers. She said, for better, for worse, and she was about to get the worst right away. Because after 17 surgeries, I could never lower my hands for one year. The surgeries, this is my hip skin back here, this is hip skin, and this, this thumb is my chest skin. In fact, it's my chest skin because they sewed me to my chest for weeks and then disconnected me and kept the chest skin, but then they needed to put a bone in there, so they took it from my hip and put it here, and they cut the nerve from the inside of my middle finger, cut a pathway here, and sewed the skin that used to be on this finger here, so the nerve no longer goes to the middle finger. It now goes over to the thumb. So when I touch here, I feel it over here. 17 of these with my hands up, but here's the reason I tell you that. I couldn't eat. I couldn't bathe, I couldn't dress, I couldn't use the restroom by myself. 24 hours a day, she had to do everything for me. 
She said, for better, for worse, and got the worst right away. I told her, leave me. Get out now. Nobody will blame you. And she went to the little corner table and got out the Gideon Bible and said, all right, now listen. You're the seminarian. Doesn't this book say that's not an option? Uh, okay, don't leave. I said, good, now let's get on with life. Listen to me. Because she has loved me at my worst and held me when others would have walked away, I'd kill a rhino with my bare hands for that woman. The more that I learned how strong her grip was and how much she loved, the more I gripped back. Don't look here. Look here. Beware of the danger. Remember the solution. Let's pray. Father, teach every student the simplicity and beauty of this. I sought the Lord, and afterward I knew he moved my soul to seek him, seeking me. It was not I. Thanks be to you, O God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.